Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. This series begins with a family mess. The husband's name is Elkanah, the wife's name is Hannah, and they are a family in trouble. They are a family in pain. They're in conflict. This is a family in crisis. There is another woman involved, and the whole thing is really just a mess, and that's where the series begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Before we zoom in on this couple, Elkanah and Hannah, let's zoom out and let's ask a question. Where does this story fall within the grand scheme of Scripture and all the, and, you know, relative to Jesus? Where does this story come? I'll show you a table of contents this morning, and you see that in this table of contents, it's the ninth book of the Old Testament. So it's pretty early in the story. And uh, this unfolds about 1,100 years before the time of Jesus. First Samuel uh, is where we're going to be centered this morning. And, and in the very first verse, you are introduced to Elkanah and his kin. We are told the name of his father and grandfather. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There is a certain man, there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now, we've got some people in our church, some couples that are expecting young children. You might be on a search for baby names. Hey, I'm helping you out right there. Here's what I can tell you. If you name your kid Zuf, you're probably going to have the only kid in the second grade named Zuf. So you'd have that going for you anyway. Uh, may not know what two plus two is, but my name's Zuf. That makes me cool. So he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina means pearl. You're going to hear me refer to her throughout this message as pearl. He had two wives. One was called Hannah. The other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. What was Hannah's life like? Penina had children. Hannah had none. We're not told how long, but there is a Jewish tradition that follows this story, and the tradition says that after 10 years of infertility, at that point, Elkanah took a second wife. For them, if you did not have a son to carry on your family name, it was as if your family name would be erased, and that was one of the worst things that could happen. And so that's why a few minutes ago we're reading this genealogy. That lineage is really important, and you, you wanted in the worst way to carry on your family name. Also worthy of note in that day, you could not leave property to anyone but a, a male heir. So it's really important that you... You have one. So after 10 years of infertility, Elkanah takes on a second wife, most likely for the purpose of producing offspring. And then scholars think that about another 10 years pass when we come to this point in our story, and you ask the question, well, how old is Hannah? Well, most people married fairly early in Hannah's day, and so it's not uh, crazy to think that Hannah could have been married by 14 or 15 years of age, maybe as late as 17, but probably closer to that 15-year uh, number. And this story, as it unfolds, if the traditions are correct, we can guess Hannah's age to be somewhere around, somewhere between 33 to 37 or 38 would be a good guess. Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. What you have is the making of a conflict. And as you hear this unfold, and you start thinking about Penina in this story, Pearl, you really hope that Pearl is kind to Hannah. 
You, you really hope that, that she, she's respectful and that she makes space for Hannah and that she understands Hannah's plight. And, and you really hope that she, um, she gets it. She does not. She is not. She's ruthless. She's mouthy. She does everything she can to make Hannah's life miserable. The drama does not unfold in their hometown of Ramah. Instead, it unfolds at the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was in a place called Shiloh. The family would have traveled there once a year. It was uh, festival time, lots of uh, eating and drinking and celebrating and um, lots of festivities. It's supposed to be a time of gladness and thanksgiving, and this is the moment that Pearl chooses every year to make Hannah's life absolutely miserable. Verse 7, the second part, whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. She cries and she weeps. And Pearl would needle Hannah and push and prod and make fun. And Hannah was a mess. She would push her food away and she would walk off and she would cry. I don't know, you, you may have been raised in a, a family that you would consider ideal. Your upbringing and your life experience may have been idyllic. Your parents stayed together, were very loving, were affirming, encouraging. You may have had grandparents that stayed together and just modeled for you what faithful, committed marriage looks like. You know, talking to grandpas like, talking to God, just these holy nuggets that rolled out of his mouth, and you're like, man, he's so wise, and that may have been your experience. It's possible that your children have brought you nothing but joy, have never made a mistake. It's possible that you give thanks for your marriage every single day, and it's up and to the right, and you guys are so in love, and everything's good. Finance is good. Relationship good. Sex is good. It's all good. And if that describes you, you just need to know today that we rejoice with you, that's great, but you need to understand today that that's not everybody's experience. In fact, somebody, it's likely in your row or in the row before or behind you, somewhere in this room today, it's very likely that somebody got really bad news this week. And things are not great. Somebody near you this morning, it's possible, is seeing a fertility specialist because they can't have kids. It's possible that somebody has walked into the room this morning after a week where they just heard that the cancer is back. The last thing they wanted to hear, and that's what they heard. They're scared. It's possible that somebody is in your row or in this room or just you might be, have seen them and shaken hands with them this morning and you don't know that this week they just had a conversation about whether or not they're going to stay together or not. Their marriage is on the rocks, on the ropes, and, and it's not looking good and they're trying to figure things out. For many of us, it's really not one extreme or the other it's kind of a blend of those two there's so much that we're pleased with on a family level and yet it can be tinted with seasons of challenge and difficulty and pain and heartbreak there are times when we can feel with maybe aging parents or with a spouse or with kids broken engagement any number of things we can just come to feel completely lost and that's where Hannah is this morning. Pearl digs at her, prods her. And Hannah pushes her food away and she sobs. What is this woman going to do? 
Her husband sees this, and he offers his sympathy in verse 8. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? No. (laughs) Elkanah, you don't. You don't. Another fire, another log on the fire of husbands saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Right? We, <laughs> we've taken that to a pro level, haven't we, men? We've figured that out pretty well. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Now remember, they are not in their hometown of Ramah. They have traveled to Shiloh, which is some distance. Hannah got up from the table where they're eating. She goes over next to the tent, which is the tabernacle. This, this, you know, this represents the, the place where God is. This is God's home. This is his space. You couldn't get any closer to God if you're Hannah than to be either in the tabernacle or next to it. And so she's right up over there, and it says, she prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. I need you to understand that Hannah is broken. Hannah is confused. She's in pain. She's weeping. Hannah's faithful. It's really important to notice that she is moving toward God. She's not moving away from God. It's not always the case. I see oftentimes as a pastor, people encounter difficulty and they move away from God. They don't move toward him. She comes to the tabernacle. She pours this pain out to God. 20 years, God, 20 years. I, I, why won't you give me what I've, what I've longed for for 20 years? And Pearl makes my life difficult every time we come here. And my husband, Elkanah, bless his heart, but he's a doofus. And he doesn't know what to say to me. She's pouring her heart out to God. This is a moment of faithfulness because often in crisis it it can become so acute that our heart is going to turn one way or the other. We'll either turn and walk toward God or we'll turn... And we'll walk away and we'll say things sometimes like, no, no, you let that happen. I don't like you anymore and I'm going to walk away. And I watch that and I I hate it when I see that. I've watched it time and again where people didn't get the news they wanted or didn't go the way they wanted and God is to blame. And if that's the way God's going to be, then I'm just going to walk away from him. And I just want to cry out, don't do that. That's the worst thing you could do. Or we move toward God and we invite him into the mess, which is exactly what Hannah does. She invites God into the mess. Question, have you done that? Have you invited God into your mess? God, here it is. It's not pretty. It's confusing. It's aggravating. God, if I'm totally honest, I'm upset. In the confusion you experience with your parents, your siblings, your extended family, maybe disruptive childhood memories, could be anything. Have you invited God into that mess? I can tell you this, her prayer is not, dear Lord, thank you for this food, thank you for this day. Her prayer is a meltdown 
And she comes to God and she pours herself out and she says, look God, this is not working at all. It's possible that you're consumed this morning with anxiety, scheming, plotting, maneuvering, anxiousness, nervousness. It's possible that you have not yet invited God into the mess and that is what he has wanted from the beginning of time. He wants to be known. He wants to be trusted. And it is possible that the very crisis that you could be experiencing right now, if you're in the middle of one, is offering you the best opportunity you have had in years to have an honest conversation with God and invite him in to whatever it is that you've got going on and approach God and say, I need you, man. I need you. I need you to show up because I'm lost and I do not know what to do. And there's a step that I've got to take and I'm at a loss for what the next step is that I'm supposed to take. Hannah's weeping. She's in pain. She's faithful. I think she's saying, I don't like this space. I don't want this space. I don't understand it. But God, I will trust you in this space. It's a powerful prayer. I don't want this. I didn't ask for this. I don't like this. I I don't understand this. It's not fair. But God, I will trust you. I will trust you in in this confusing space. Hannah is faithful. She moves toward God. She does not move away from him. She invites him into her mess. And then she does something that really comes as a shock. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. And then what she says next, unless you know the story, this is shocking. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Clearly, that has not been said about me, but was said about Samuel. You say, what's that all about? Well, she's, it's something called the Nazarite vow. If you wanted to learn about that, you could go to Numbers chapter 6. It'll explain to you what the Nazarite vow is. I'll give you a little brief synopsis. An adult could make a vow for a length of time, and in that time, you would let your hair grow out. You would not Uh, You would not partake in any alcoholic beverage. You would abstain completely. Uh, You would give special attention to special ceremonial cleansings. And, and, uh, you know, if there was a dead body, you weren't around it. Even if it was family, you you just, you you weren't around it. It was was the Nazarite vow from the Hebrew word nazir, which means to to, to separate. And it's not necessarily being separated from something as much as it is being separated for something. God, if you will give me a son, I'm giving him back to you, and he will serve you, and he will be fully devoted to you. That's really what she's saying. And as Hannah is sobbing this prayer, there is a priest nearby, and his name is Eli, and he is important to the story. Eli sees this woman, and the scripture says she was praying without words. She's pouring her heart out. Her lips are moving, but there aren't words coming out. Eli thinks she's drunk. I mean, this is festival time. This was not uncommon. Uh, this wouldn't have been the first drunk person Eli had ever seen at a festival, okay? And it's amazing. I can tell you as a pastor, when I've ever been around drunk people and they find out I'm a pastor, the next things that come out of their mouth 
are sometimes amazing. It's, it's just, I mean, people get really spiritual when they get drunk. It's just it's those conversations, you know, about God. And, and, and uh, they become experts, too, by the way, on who God is and how God is. And I've been entertained many, many times listening to drunk people talk about God. He thinks she's a drunk woman, and she's come to Babel at the tabernacle. Verse 13, Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. She looks up at Eli, and she explains herself. Verse 15, not so, my Lord. Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. This is not a liquid that I have poured into my body. This is pain that I'm pouring out. Verse 16, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. This story is full of pain. This story is full of great anguish and grief. And Eli realizes that she is not intoxicated. And he says, may God give you what you've been asking for. In the second part of verse 18, then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Now here's what I want you to notice, and this is important. There is no conception, there is no pregnancy, there is no child. Just the fact that she has unburdened her soul and invited God into this mess, she walks away, her heart is lighter, and she's ready to eat something. Verse 19, early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Embedded in the word Samuel is the phrase to ask. I have asked the Lord for him. And you watch Hannah with this baby. How old do you suppose Hannah was when she is having this child? She's older, an older mother, to be sure, more older than the average mother. And she nurses this baby that she has waited for for so long. And she looks down at him and she says, Samuel, we love you, but you don't belong to us. You don't belong to me. You belong to God. He gave you to me, and I'm going to give you back to him. A year goes by, and Elkanah comes, and he says, Hey, Hannah, pack up. Get little Samuel. It's time to go to Shiloh, to the tabernacle. And Hannah looks back and says, I'm not coming. We're going to stay right here. I'm going to stay here with Samuel. In Eastern culture, you would wean a child at about, you'd move them away from nursing at about the age of three years. They would need to be able to eat solid foods and Hannah says, no, I'm going to stay here with little Samuel, and when he's old enough to eat pancakes and oatmeal and things like that, then we'll go with you to Shiloh. You go off, but when we go that next time and we take Samuel, I will drop him off and we will come home. Verse 22, the second part, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. She stays there. She 
skips the annual trip until Samuel is three. Now, I'm just curious, as we read this and you come to this part of the story, I, I just, what are you thinking right now? I mean, how does this hit you? What's, how do you react to this? I can tell you this. I had three kids. And they are, and to this day, are still precious to me. And had you told me that when I, my child, any one of the three, was three years old, I was going to take them somewhere and leave them there to be raised by someone, somebody else, and that I would get to see them once a year, I'd have said, oh, no. No, we're not doing that. And yet that is what Hannah does. Hannah and Elkanah and little three-year-old Samuel approach the tabernacle. They find Eli. Now keep in mind, Hannah has not seen Eli for three years. And she says, do I look familiar to you? Do you remember me? And then she says, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live. I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. And the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And she leaves Samuel at the tabernacle to be raised as a priest in training. And she and her husband return home to Ramah. You wonder what that trip home was like. Did she keep a stiff upper lip? And just keep her eye on the horizon and try to keep the tears out of her eyes and try to put on a bold front for Elkanah? Or is every mile filled with tears and grief and, and sadness as she makes her way back home to Ramah? Keep your eyes on Hannah. The Lord is going to bless her with more than just Samuel. She will have other sons and daughters. But keep your eye on Samuel because he is going to become a fixture in the tabernacle. People will show up at the tabernacle to worship and there's this kid running around in a little priest outfit. Samuel grows up and the people like him. We're told that Samuel had the favor of the people. This little boy is going to grow up. He's going to be special and as he grows, he's going to hear from God. He speaks God's words to the people. It's like he becomes a conduit of God's words to the people. He's like just this, this connectivity piece. Samuel will become a leader. He will lead the hearts of the people back to God. They will put away their Baal altars. They will tear down their Asherah fertility poles that are out in their yards. They will watch this kid grow up to anoint kings. And as he grows, his reputation will be spotless. He will grow old and die. And when he does, Scripture tells us that the entire nation mourned and wept because they had lost him. Samuel will be a prophet. He will be a leader. He will anoint kings. He will have unmatched integrity. Samuel will be faithful. You need to understand where this story begins. This story begins not with the faithfulness of Samuel. This story begins with the faithfulness of his mother. The story begins with tears and heartache and confusion and mess. And it begins with somebody who's saying, I don't like this space. I don't understand it. I don't want this. But I will trust you, God, in this space. God is telling us a great story, but it is a great story with some awful parts. Sometimes God is pleased to bring unspeakably good things out of unspeakably bad circumstances. 
Something as unspeakably good as the life of Samuel often comes out of something as unspeakably bad as Hannah's tears and grief and pain. For the next several moments, I'm not really talking to everybody. For the next several moments, I want to talk to those of you who find yourselves in the middle of the storm. In in the middle of a family storm. Your child has disappointed you again. Your son or daughter refuses your help again. Your dad is quickly fading away and and there are parts of him that are already gone and you're going to have to make decisions about what happens next and you're confused and you don't know and and that's a you know big thing. You wonder if your marriage that's on its last ropes is going to make it. Know that often God is trying to and desires to do something unbelievably good out of something unspeakably wrong. I said tries to. God doesn't have to try to. He does. It is his way. Joseph, at 17 years of age, is sold into slavery by his brothers, and he's hauled off to Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he is framed for something that he did not do. 22 years, he spends time in jail. 22 years later, his brothers have to come south to Egypt. They have no idea whatever happened to Joseph. They've long forgotten him, but they have to come to Egypt to buy grain because there's a famine. He rescues his family in a time of famine, and when they find out that he is alive and who he is, he is basically ascended to become basically, the, his position would have been something like Secretary of State for Egypt. He's incredibly powerful. And when his brothers find out who he is, they fear that when their father dies, he will kill them in re- for revenge. And Joseph says to them, what you did to me when I was 17, you meant for evil. You meant it to mess me up, but God meant it for good. And now we are all here together in Egypt, and we're going to be okay because I've got food for us. You meant it for evil. You meant it, you meant it to hurt me, but God meant it for good. God will often bring something unspeakably good out of something unbelievably bad. It is his way. Jesus comes to earth, he lives, he teaches, he heals, he is nailed to a Roman cross, and the disciples are so confused at the story that God is telling. And God says, listen, that right there, my son dying, that's happening for you. It means I don't have to punish you for your sins. Someone will have already been punished. Receive the substitute sufferer, Jesus Christ. The disciples are in unspeakable pain and distress, and God does something unspeakably good out of something unspeakably wrong. And for those of you that are traveling through that unspeakable storm right now, for those of you that you're not really sure what the next step is and and it doesn't make sense, and you know, I don't like this space, I don't want this space, I don't understand it, but God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say, God, I will invite you into this mess. I will run toward you, I will not run away from you. I will trust you in this space. Now, you may be here this morning, and you're not in the middle of the mess. You may be here this morning, and as we say at Cross Lane, it's all up and to the right. You ever seen a graph where it shows good things? It's always up and to the right. First of all, praise God that that's your life. If that's your life, and I want it to be your life, praise God. We rejoice with you. I'm happy for you. 
You know, come in here, uh, how you doing? Man, things are going so good for us. Man, that's awesome. I mean, really, I'm, it makes me happy when you come in and tell me things are going good for you. But can you still trust God in the little stuff? When the refrigerator goes out, that's little stuff. Can you trust God in the little stuff? Or are you bad-mouthing everything, put you in a bad mood, you're yelling at the kids, your husband can't do anything right? Car breaks down, daggone it. Get in a bad mood, pick the kids up from school in a rental or a, a used car or on foot. I don't know how you're doing it, but well, why are we on foot? Car broke down. Come on, curse God. Just, you know, like, no. Trusting God with the little stuff prepares the heart for the day when the big stuff comes. And the big stuff, just trust me, is coming. It comes for all of us. Learn to trust him with the small stuff as he trains the channels of the heart to trust him with the big stuff. I have one question that I want to leave you with as we close this morning, and yes, we are done. Can you believe that? What? Here's the question. What situation in your family or extended family could provide an opportunity to trust God more deeply? What's going on in your world right now where God is basically saying, hey, this is an opportunity for you to invite me right up next to you, and let's see, let's see how God's going to work in whatever is going on in, in your unspeakable thing. Now just understand that it's, this is not about telling God how to do it, and this isn't about coming in with a preconceived idea, okay, God coming into my life means this, this, and this is going to happen. Oftentimes those things don't happen, but other things happen. Because God's wise, and because God knows things we don't know, and he knows what's needed but where in your world could you just extend that invitation where you say, God, I, I need you, and I am not going to run away from you. I'm tempted. I'm angry. I'm, I'll confess. I don't get it. I, I, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm exasperated. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be right here to meet you. God, I want to be like Hannah. I want, to be, I want to be like that woman that things were not going her way. In fact, it was awful. And yet she ran toward you. She did not run away from you. I want, I want that for my life. And God, just show me what that looks like. Is there a possibility for you to invite God into your mess this morning? Let me pray with you. Father, My prayer is always that the people that go to Cross Lane have great lives, that things are wonderful, and it's all grand. But I know better. Life's not that way. We all face things. Sin is in the world. And people do stuff, and it hurts us. And sometimes we do stupid stuff and hurt us. And sometimes nobody did anything, but somebody gets sick. Someone passes away. Someone isn't able to fulfill whatever someone else had for them or thought that they should. It's just all kinds of different circumstances, God, and, and, and we encounter that, and our first thought is to tuck tail and run. God obviously doesn't care about me, doesn't love me, and I'm not going to spend any more time thinking about him. Father, help us to resist that urge. That is, that is the, the natural thing for us to do, but the 
the right thing for us to do is to recognize that you are right there and you're waiting to be invited in to the mess. And Father, help us to just understand that often the mess is, is a blessing. Because you're bringing us into sacred space. And through the pain and the confusion and the unspeakable frustration of it all, we meet you there. And Father, I pray that that is the experience that people will have this week as they invite you into the mess. And even if things don't change and things don't get better, they're faithful and they run to you and they cling to you and they worship. And so, Father, in these moments, these holy, sacred moments, we are collectively on our knees before our Father, worshiping, giving ourselves to you, asking for your help, trusting you with every step. Father, we can do this simply because Jesus went to a cross and made a way for us to come to you. And for that, we are thankful. We love you, Father. We worship you. You are holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.